welcome to Reality 2.0, the podcast. I am Catherine Druckmann with Doc Searles, as always. And hey joining That's my new us. Last name, as and, always. As always. <laughs> is Doc Searles. Everyone's favorite. You can tag that on. It's a little, um, anyway. Uh, and we have Kyle Rankin, who, if you've been listening to our podcast, you know Kyle. We love Kyle. Um, ahoy, ahoy. I love you. Yeah. <laughs> we wanted to talk to Kyle again because we like talking to Kyle and we don't really need an excuse, but um, today we're going to talk about mobile devices and the, the most personal of all devices is also potentially the one that is the most threatening, I guess, to our security and privacy. And, and you know, we've discussed privately and now with you um, how it seems like every day I'm reading something more and more, you know, unsettling, some terrible exploit, you know, that makes my data on whatever platform I'm using, you know, iOS, Android, anything, but um, makes it vulnerable. Just recently, there was news that came out about a government subsidized phone for low income families that came pre-installed with malware there's you know articles about you know hacking into people's sd cards which a lot of android phones use for additional storage um articles about duplicating people's fingerprints so that you can hack into their biometric protection um so yeah so it's you know it's it's at the same time it's it's the device that most people have and most people trust with their personal data but it's also not not just lacking security it is also giving up your location giving up you know everything there is to know about your life to the point that again speaking of articles the new york times came out recently with an article describing how they could easily just based on location data um pick out pick out a person's identity just from the places that they visited because that's your that's a your, yeah, it's a fingerprint your movement is, is your movement yeah. is your fingerprint so yeah anyway i will i will hand it over to y'all to sort of take that discussion a little bit further sure well maybe maybe i'll start by t- talking very abstractly about you know the the phone as as a computer platform and sort of why it's so such a big deal that it's um, why it's such a great platform to in, um, abuse people's privacy, maybe, uh, because it's not, a, to some level, a lot of the things that we're seeing aren't new. If you have an a, a old desktop computer or a laptop, there, you know, web browsers are constantly trying to get, in, you know, store information and metadata about the site you visit and all of that. You know, that level is something that we've been dealing with for a long time. And in addition to pre, pre-installed malware, you know, you, there were uh, a long time ago, one of the first things that a lot of us would do if we got a laptop for our family and it wasn't running Linux. And for example, say they even didn't want to run Linux, they wanted to run Windows, uh, was to reinstall it from Windows from scratch because it always came with all of these pre-bundled weird applications from the vendor, not even, you know, for Microsoft, but from the vendor that in many cases turned out to be spyware. Um, so you take all of that, which is also equally true on a modern phone, but add in the fact that, you know, in addition to all of the things that your regular computer can do, which is, you know, your personal computer that you are with in your house or with it in your work, you know, you have this pocket computer that is with you everywhere you go. And add to that, in addition to all of the regular things that a regular computer can do, 
uh, a pocket, your pocket computer has all of these extra great sensors in it, you know? And so they have a GPS, they have um, ambient light sensors, they have um, accelerometers so they can detect motion. Uh, and it's something that's in your pocket all of the time. So, and you know, it has a, a cellular modem that's always connecting and, and triangulating with towers because the towers need to know where you are so they can direct a phone call to the right tower. Um, so that's always going. Um, if you have Wi-Fi on and you're walking around, um, it's behind the scenes attempting to look for valid access points. So it's attempting to associate. And um, so you can gauge in many ways. If you, had, if you were the kind of company that would store, that had metadata stores of all of the wireless access points that you could drive by with a car and their signal strengths, you could easily correlate that with the Wi-Fi access points that a phone goes by and get a pretty decent um, sense of where somebody is. Uh, so it, it's all of the privacy concerns with our desktop computer and all of the privacy threats just magnified because there's all of these extra sensors. Um, so regardless of, plat of platform, just to start with, just the, the fact that it's the most personal phone in your pocket that has all of your personal information on it uh, makes it just this great platform for abuse. Yeah, I actually just had that conversation with a friend yesterday about how, you know, as, as people who make websites and whatnot, how it, at some point in our life, we realize just how much even just a, you know, a web browser gives up about the user. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it is almost a fingerprint, you know, it, all you have to know is the version of every piece of software that a person is using, you know, the version of the browser, the version of the, the operating system, you know, the IP address, you know, there's so much just, just given up by your web browser. So, you know, add that to this other treasure trove of data that a phone provides and it's, it would be really hard to um, stay anonymous. <laughs> well, the, the, the thing is that with, um, I mean, here in the physical world where we are all separately, um, uh, but connected digitally. But here, here in the physical world, if I look around my office, I see a, a zillion details. All of them are really good tells about all kinds of things. If I look in the mirror, there are all these tells that are, that are really fine details about my face. If I look at where I've been in the world, which I remember, the, all of those things could be used to fingerprint me one way or another. Um, but a, you know, a, a grace of, of human existence is that we're forgetting all of this. What we know is tacit, it's not explicit. And, and that's part of human living as well, that we, you know, the three of us would recognize each other in a crowd, but we'd have a hard time explaining exactly how we do that. What are, you know, it isn't just eye color, it's all kinds of, of implications that, are, that, that we pick up and the human brain is really good at understanding without being really good at explaining. And unfortunately, computing things are really good at the explicits and there's no tacit whatsoever. So you can add, even with AI, AI doesn't do tacit, it just does more explicit with more implications of explicit. So, so it adds up all these explicit things that, oh, by the way, it also doesn't forget. It can correlate a zillion different ways and we can be known so many ways and so well. Um, that, that is just mind boggling. But the, and, and the fact that most of the, science behind this has been used mostly just to sell us crap has you know has it's actually been like a false read it's been it's been a mis it's been a big misdirection it's like well we're not worried i'm 
I've, I've really been okay. I'm followed by Google or Amazon, which wants to sell me a headphone or a speaker. So what? I don't care. No harm, no foul. But that the innocence or the or the incompetence or the irrelevance of all of that misleads us into lulls us into a kind of complacency, and and we've done just a horrible job of of understanding what not only I think we do I think we've always understood what the risks are I know the, the geeks have, but we haven't gone to the trouble of saying for example, you know our browser ought to be like a car, um, not like a modern car which does have spyware in it but an old fashioned car where it's my car. It's a carapace that I carry around that I, I ride in and doesn't have any spyware in it. And I have a sense that it's a private thing. And, you know, it's my castle on wheels. My home is my castle, right? Whoever said that, I forget who. Oh, Blackstone in the UK said that. Um, that but we don't have our homes as castles. Instead, we've, we've got our homes online are, are just lined with eyeballs, you know, like the eyes of a fly is a zillion eyes looking out. It's kind of the opposite of that. There are a zillion eyes looking in. And that's bad. <laughs> this is yeah. inherently bad. But I don't even know where we get it. You know, unless we're using it, we should transition into this, unless we have an inherently private device to use in the first place and zero base on that, we're not going to get it. Well, that's a good, good segue. So, good. Kyle, so, so, so just getting it out of the way. <laughs> So we want to make sure that we, for anyone who doesn't know who Kyle Rankin is, and then I ask who, who are those people, but and why are you listening still? Um, All five of them. Yeah, no, everybody knows Kyle. Um, so Kyle works for a company called Purism that has come out with a new phone. So Kyle has a arguably biased perspective on all of this, but at the same time, Kyle is the person I would trust most with my personal security. Um, so you, <laughs> there's that endorsement, but, um, but I think be, for that reason, I think Kyle, you have an encyclopedic knowledge about cell phone security. I mean, that, that's what you do, right? So, so I think that you are well qualified to, to have this conversation. Um, so to that end, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you are addressing, you know, security and privacy issues with your, with your phone. Sure. Well, first, um, thanks for all the compliments. I don't know if I agree with all of the superlatives, but thank you anyway. Um, well, but you I'll try them. my best. <laughs> I'll try, <laughs> try my best to live up to some of that. Um, so yeah, so it, it's good to get out of the way that I have a biased perspective because I'm I work for a company that's trying to solve this problem. And you know, whenever you hear an opinion from someone who's selling a product trying to solve a problem, you know, they're going there's there's an inherent bias. As much as you try to get rid of it, it's baked in there. Um, but all that to say, this problem that we're talking about with phones in general was the problem that caused Todd to found Purism uh, many years ago because he saw this same problem in the context of his children. He has, we have this on the website, there's this whole origin story about why Purism was created to begin with. And um, it essentially comes down to he has two daughters and they were getting older, old enough that he was starting to think, you know, in, in a certain number of years, they're going to want a phone. And he didn't feel comfortable giving them any of the phones on the market because of all of these reasons we just stated. You know, he didn't feel safe with them in, in their possession. And then he realized, wait, I have all of the skills necessary to solve this problem or to create a business to solve this problem. So, but I can't start with the phone. I need to build, you know, credibility in the market and show that we can deliver things by doing a laptop first. And then moved on. At, fast forward now, we're now in the final phase 
phase of that initial plan where we now have a phone that we're we're completing and starting to ship out to backers. Right now we're in the initial phases of that. So I have one of the earlier batches of this phone. And it's and it was designed with all of this with all of the things that we're just talking about in mind. Um, and a lot of that has to do with just um, it having a running a regular Linux operating system instead of Android or iOS. And then having all of these other, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, problems with how phones have been designed the last handful of years, because in many ways they're looked at, especially on the Android side, less so on the, on the iOS side, just because the marketing is different about that. But to, there's a, there's a focus, you know, in a way of, of monetizing the user and that, that's baked into the design of the phone. So uh, an example you mentioned at the very beginning of the show about the story about um, these government issued phones that had spyware installed on them. Um, well, the, the problem and the difference between, you know, say the Android platform and getting spyware baked into an old Windows machine that you bought from your vendor is that the spyware, you couldn't uninstall it. It was impossible to uninstall because there's mechanisms within Android that allow Google to make you know, Google apps uninstallable. And so I imagine there's probably some way that you can, through some clever rooting of the device, perhaps be able to trick it to remove, the, remove software. But if you were to go into the regular means to install software and uninstall software, all this malware that's pre-installed, you can't do anything about. Um, you're just sort of stuck with it, right? And that, that's in many ways by design because there's certain, some basic applications that um, that Google doesn't want you to remove from Android, like Google Apps, because that's their, you know, that's their critical, as some people would say, maybe parts of it are spyware. Uh, but that's, you know, besides being, in their opinion, critical to the device, it's also a means of which to gather data from people, you know. Um, so, like, our focus with creating a phone was to create one focused on sort of respecting the user or giving the user power over the device and ownership over the device and their data. Because as we said, this is like an incredibly personal device. You have it on you all the time. It has sensors listening all the time. Um, and most people, uh, the way that the phones are designed nowadays, uh, you, you get one. Uh, you can get updates as long as the vendor decides you're allowed to, which is usually two to three years maybe. Then after that, it just sort of magically expires and you can no longer get updates. Um, and there's a, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of, it's almost as though you're renting it. You're like I, I saw a story recently about, um, about when there were the trade wars between China and the U.S., uh, Google was ordered by the U.S. government to remove uh, Huawei's ability to get updates from Google, and they were able to do it. <laughs> the, the, the one th it's one thing that, that placed the order, but the shocking thing to me was that, yeah, the mechanisms are in place where they can say, yeah, you're not allowed. Um, we can restrict all of your devices that you have in your possession from getting these updates. And we, we saw the same thing with Apple too, when um, there's a lot of controversy when they were really starting to push the privacy narrative as part of their marketing. Um, and their main competitors, Google and Facebook, they were able to use that as like a differentiator, right? And so uh, they started looking into permission settings that, that Facebook had and Google had on certain applications and when they saw that they were pulling more data than they should, then they made a big, they made a big show of removing the removing those applications from iPhones remotely, right? And so some people mm. saw that and they said, "Well, that's you know very responsible of Apple and well done and all of that." And I said, "That's 
frightening. At the same time, they just remove software from your personal device. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of that that old that old classic uh, Kindle story where they removed 1984 from everyone who bought it. You know, I mean, it's just like yeah. you couldn't or, you couldn't make that up. Or conversely, the the U2 album. Remember, when, years ago when YouTube came out with an album and it just magically appeared on everybody's Apple device, and people freaked out. They're like, I, I didn't put this here. I didn't order it. I didn't you know I didn't sign up for it. You just pushed it out. Like, what the hell is this? It's just, you know, yeah. it's kind of the same thing. Well, yeah, there's, and so there's this perception that you don't necessarily own these devices completely, right? I mean, there's that it's really, no, yeah. there's this paternalistic um, approach from the vendor where, where we, we are here to take care of you, the user. You don't really necessarily know what you're doing. And so we have to protect you from yourself. And, but don't worry, we're here to save the day and just, just turn everything over to us and we'll make it okay, right? Um, there's, despite the fact that, you know, a lot of this is based, in my opinion, off of very um, sort of uh, the way that P- IT looked at users using computers 20 years ago when people weren't necessarily digital natives. Uh, but now you have, you know, despite what some people would say, I would, I would argue that people are way more sophisticated about using computers now than they were 20, 30 years ago. Yet the uh, ability of a user to control their own device is way less now. Uh, than it was 20, 30 years ago. You know, a lot, essentially, a lot of a lot of uh, workspaces and a lot of just even personal devices are incredibly locked down with keys that the vendor controls, which is just really strange considering how, again, how sophisticated and knowledgeable about computers people are now. Yeah. And, and the excuse on their part is, um, and, and I, I hear this on the user side as well, is that, okay, the world we have is so completely bad that this is the only way. The only way is, okay, as long as half of you are using iPhones or whatever Google's excuse is, we have to, we have to operate this way. We're in charge. Sorry. Uh, I know you'd rather be independent and, and all that, but it's not like that anymore. We're not, we're, we're running a, a, a kind of the, we're running a, ra- you know, a railroad here. You don't have a car. You know, you're, on, you're a passenger on our, on our system. And it only looks, it only feels like it's yours. And we'd, we'd want you to feel like it's yours. But it isn't really. It's ours. And you're just using it. And you're paying for the rights to use it. But basically, we've got the system and it's locked down. That's not an excuse, by the way. I'm just trying to explain what I've heard, you know, what I've heard of their uh, uh, logic. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that's the approach. The approach is, you know, we're, the, the only way to make this safe is to, for us to fully control all of the keys. If you were to ask most security professionals even, a lot of experts in the space to design a system uh, to secure a device or to secure software, they almost universally invent a system where coincidentally their vendor has full control over keys. They will implement some kind of key signing mechanism. These days they will um, add some sort of hardware component to further lock it down and make it difficult to root. And, And the keys will be fully controlled by the vendor that coincidentally also requires you to put 100% full trust in the vendor. And it also means that your only options are to be secure and fully rely on them or have no security. In in many cases, you have to turn it all off. Um, So it's an all or nothing kind of proposition, which is not necessarily how I like to approach security anyway. I I tend to liken it to golf where I, like the, I like to say, I use this analogy a lot, but a lot of people approach security in, in the security space, security experts, uh, as though they are playing golf and they get to the tee and their only goal is to hit a hole in one. And they swing and they look and did they get a hole in one? No. Well, then they quit. That's it. Yeah. The only goal is to get a hole in one. 
where in my mind, security is a game of getting closer to the hole with every stroke. And you don't throw away a stroke just because it got closer to the hole but didn't go in. You know, the goal is that as with every procedure or every method you put in place, that you're a little bit more secure, that you're slowly incrementing toward being secure. Um, so yeah, so that, I mean, that, that influences all of the security decisions that we make at Purism, for instance. It, it's, a, it's a weird problem that a lot of people in the um, security space don't have to face because our problem is to, solve, to give someone security while also keeping control in their hands which is a way harder problem to solve. It's a lot easier to solve the problem by saying, just give me all of your keys. Um, I'll take care of everything for you. So yeah. we want to, yeah, you know, and so it, it influences a lot of our decisions. It influenced how we handled uh, boot security on our laptops. And it also influenced a lot of the decisions about how we, um, how we handle the phone too. Um, not just security, but just overall design, because the thought is someone's going to, uh, someone should own this device. It should be, they should feel like it's their device. And so the, the entire, what some of the challenges we hit in making it and um, our CTO, Nicole uh, Ferber uh, wrote this great blog post a couple of weeks ago about, um, I think it's called breaking ground. And it talks about all the challenges in making this phone because essentially we had to make it from scratch. The entire ecosystem was built around off the shelf um, certain off-the-shelf components that as long as you bought those off-the-shelf components, you were fine. But the problem is they were all very closed and they were all built for an Android ecosystem. If you wanted to run free software on them, and especially if you wanted to have as free of firmware as you could get, they really didn't have a whole lot of options for you. They're, also, if you wanted to have um, the ability for the user to replace certain parts, you know, I mean, we've seen this with laptops the last, you know, decade or two, the focus on laptops is thinness, thinness, thinness above all else. You know, I don't, maybe right. some people really want a thin laptop. I don't necessarily care one way or the other, but, but I would argue that the drive to make laptops thinner as a differentiator has ruined in many cases, a lot of laptops because mm -hmm. what you end up with is, you know, there's no, for example, there's no ethernet ports anymore, which would be kind of handy. Um, you just end up with like one port maybe for a big uh, dongle adapter in many cases. Um, it's caused, in many cases, RAM to be soldered onto the board. A lot of, a lot of components to be baked into the board and not user replaceable, right. um, including the battery. Right, all in, all in the drive just to be thin, which I'm sure some people asked for, but a lot of people didn't necessarily until they were told that was the differentiator. Um, and the same thing goes for phones. Uh, it's worse in phones because that's been a huge driver is to make phones as thin as humanly possible, which is why you, know, you can generally not replace the battery anymore. And you certainly can't replace a lot of the other components. And in many cases, you know, you can't add a micro SD card anymore, although there's exceptions, of course. Um, but because of all of that, when we, we had to essentially build this from scratch <laughs> because a lot of the things yeah. that we wanted to, someone to be able to do with the phone didn't really exist anymore. We wanted, we wanted someone to be able to remove the modem if they wanted to either swap modems or didn't want a modem. Uh, or in our case, we wanted people to be able to turn the modem off with a switch that actually, you know, cut the circuit and shut it, shut it down, which, you know, that's an odd request. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, so, so here, the, here's a, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, that, that was it. Go ahead. Well, so, um, back in our Linux journal days, we had, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to remember the names of some of them, but there were a bunch of Linux phones. Um, and all of them failed. Um, 
Now, I think to some degree what happened was that both iPhone and Android came along and with the App Store, you know, so a user install was real easy. Um, and, I'm, and I'm wondering um, how Purism is going to be and how the Purism phone is going to be different that way, especially for adding apps. You know, is it, is it basically a really great little computer or is it something that has easy app install and a, a likely market that's going to grow in the app space uh, on the phone? Sure. Well, I'll do two quick. I'll sort of answer in two different ways. One, I'll, uh, there's two different topics that I really want to talk about. One is sort of the history of Linux phones and why it seemed, felt like it died um, yeah. maybe five years ago, five, six, seven years ago, a little bit. I um, mean, then to the app store, we'll do the app store first. So to me, uh, Linux has forever um, had, had um, solved the app, like had an app store way before anyone knew what an app store was. You know, if you remember, mm. I mean, you go back 20 years ago and you give someone a computer and you tell them to install an application, if you weren't running Linux, what you would do is you would go to the website for the software that you wanted to install. You would go to that site and download an EXE or maybe you would go to, you know, downloads.com or something like that. You download the EXE and run it. And if you wanted updates, every application either had its own built-in update mechanism or you would go to the site and download it. And then the, the OS was completely different. Um, and this is the, in the age of the online world. We're skipping past, you know, when what yeah. all of us remember with CD-ROMs and floppies. Um, so, but anyway, uh, in that world where you could go download EXEs, Linux for the longest time had an application store where at first it was command line, but then there's been GUIs wrapped around it where you just search for the applications you want and it's all through one big um, pane of glass as it were, and you download and install it. Um, in our case, we're handling in the same way. So we have all of the applications. Uh, if you, right now on this phone, if I, I can run the same GNOME um, software uh, program that you would run on a pure OS desktop because it's running the same OS. Uh, I can run that and see the same list of applications available to install. Now the big challenge, and this is something where we've had to do a lot of work in house to fix this, is that most of the app, almost all of the applications were written assuming you're running them on a landscape mode uh, computer with, right. a, with a large screen, right? And so what you find is if you take any, you know, take any program any, uh, on your desktop and then drag the, win the corner of the window to be really small, the size of a phone, and usually it gets to a certain size after which you can't shrink it further, right? Um, mm -hmm. And, but we also have this history now that um, people have been browsing the web on phones. There's, you also notice that if you do the same thing on a web browser, a lot of times, especially if you load the mobile version of a, of a website, there's a whole thing about response. They call it responsive design where the idea right. is to make the web app, you know, if you shrink it down, it works. Right. So essentially we're working on a similar, we, we've uh, in house, we've published a library called live handy that's been integrated into the GTK libraries that you use to build GUI applications that makes it easy for you to do the same kind of thing for, for an existing application. So you can say when you, when you drag the corner of the app essentially and it gets to a certain size, it says, oh, I need to go to phone mode and the widgets and everything automatically move to where they're supposed to be to look good on a phone. Um, so uh, for the applications that don't necessarily support that, then that's, that's where you start right now what we're seeing, like if on the phone that I have, I will install an application and if it has been updated to take that into account, then the widgets look good and things work well. If it hasn't, then I have a window where a lot of the stuff runs off the screen, right? Um, mm -hmm. 
However, even just, I've only had this phone for a week, but uh, one of the applications that was like that was is what called G-Potter. And that's like an, a long-standing, pretty old um, now uh, podcast application, just a nice GUI application to add podcasts like this one and um, start listening to, you know, and subscribe to feeds and download and listen to them. Well, it ran off the screen, but not too much, but it did a little bit. But because it's Linux and because this was a Python GTK application, um, I was able to go through and I just sort of poked through the code. And of course, I'm not a huge Python. I'm not really a big Python programmer at all. And I've done a little bit of GTK programming back in the day, but not very much. But I was able to poke through the files that the package installed and find the one that described how the, how the window was drawn. And I essentially made a two line change and, was, and it works perfectly on the phone where the two line change told these two different um, sort of windows within the window that were stacked horizontally, so side by side. I just told them to go stack top to bottom. And once I did that, then the, it fit perfectly in my phone screen. And a lot of, I mean, some applications will be more complicated than that, but that's an example of that one. It was a pretty simple change and it worked fine on the screen. Um, so that's sort of the app, the app store issue for us is more a combination of web apps, which is how um, Apple initially wanted to, wanted to solve the problem. Um, and then in addition to that, all of the existing applications that you have available on any Linux desktop. Uh, making sure that the prime time ones, the best ones of those, uh, work on the form factor of the screen. Uh, but the, for the history of Linux phones, I, I tell you, it's really interesting because uh, what this phone, what my, this current Leaven 5 reminds me of is my previous Linux phone, which was a uh, Nokia N900. I actually did a review of that for Linux Journal. Mm, and it was just popular. such a, yeah, it was such a, well, it's such a cool phone because it was like, why it was cool was it was like having a Linux desktop in your pocket. <laughs> you know, yep. you were, it was real Linux. You had a, you would actually install Debian packages that all worked and it had this huge community of developers and it was the big, it was going, it was going to be the big major Linux phone platform. So what happened? Well, ultimately Nokia was, was bought out by Microsoft. And because Microsoft had aspirations of doing its own phone OS, and essentially shut all of that stuff down. And so it, you know, parts of it lived on. Some of the developers went on to try to resurrect the software side of it. But if you have, but if you had a hardware, you know, Nokia, a hardware company working on an OS as well, then you have all the combinations. You need to have the right um, recipe, successful phone. Uh, since after that happened, there was a lot of attempts to do something else for the community to try to make something else. But I, my theory on why a lot of it failed, at least, is that a lot of, a lot of the um, people who were working on it viewed it as a software problem and not a hardware problem. And so mm. what they said was, well, we're, because they were all software companies, so that was their wheelhouse. So they said, well, we're either an OS company or we're you know, software developers. All we need, you know, it's as easy as they thought to um, get just some random hardware somewhere some pre-existing hardware that already exists, and we just have to port our OS to it, and it'll be fine. Um, it's the same sort of mentality that a lot of people have approached with Linux on the desktop. They said, well, all we need to do is we will win as long as someone can install Linux, buy a Windows computer, and install Linux on it, then that's all we really need to succeed. And as we've seen the last you know, couple of decades, that's not the case. Uh, 
my, I think one of the main reasons that Linux didn't take off on the desktop like it should have was because there weren't very many options to get it pre-installed. Uh, you know, people don't really have, most people have never installed Windows or Mac OS either. <laughs> you know, they, they buy a machine and it's supported with whatever OS it comes with. And for me, the, the phone isn't really no different. If you want something to succeed, you, you need to have to approach it as a hardware company with hardware that has, that has the software pre-installed and ready to go. It has to be convenient that way. Um, a lot of people, if you say, well, all you have to do is go buy this rooted device somewhere, go through these odd steps to root it further, and then run our OS installation script, and then you're good. You know, some people would do that, but not as many as you would need to get mass adoption. Interesting. You know, I, I came across a, we, we had a, my household, I say we, we, we had an N900 back in the day and I was cleaning and found uh, an old N900. And, and it's, it's kind of shocking how, how different a device a modern smartphone is from the N900, but not necessarily in a good way, you know? So. Right. Well, yeah, there's all these design decisions that largely were dictated by iPhone design, right? And just mm -hmm. the same, the same thing with laptops. Laptops became thinner partially because Ultrabooks allowed it to be so, but largely because, you know, Apple used it as a differentiator for their laptops. They said, you know, we're three centimeters thinner than this other laptop or whatever, or that's too large, but like, you know, it got down to ultimately millimeters. But anyway, same thing happened with phones. They said, well, you know, before that, remember the Blackberry was the dominant player. And, and they said, no, you know, keyboards are, keyboards are lame, everybody. You have to do a touchscreen keyboard. And instantly the entire market moved over. You know, they add a notch, everyone adds a notch. Um, you know, whether you ask for a notch or not, <laughs> everyone just sort of taking design cues from them. Um, and, you know, the same thing goes, like the N900, it had an actual pretty nice fold-out, nice really little keyboard. Really nice keyboard, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was very usable. I used it for all kinds of stuff. But, um, you know, modern day, that's not really popular. And so your main options are touchscreen, I guess. So, so can you talk a little bit about um, just device security? You know, I think that that's something that, um, I don't know. I, I don't know how much people actively worry about it, but maybe should. I don't know. I, I you know, I feel like I, I see so much out there that's just like, like literally every day so, or somebody will email me something or I'll see something every day about how my device is going to screw me in some way. Right. It's going to happen. And, and, and there's this sort of, there's this line about how, well, you just, you need the latest, you need the latest phone. You know, you've got to upgrade your phone every year or else you're not secure, you're in danger, or you have to, and that kind of mentality I resent. I mean, I, you know, I shouldn't have to spend a thousand bucks a year just to be secure on, you know, to have a secure phone. Um, and there's a lot of, I don't know, probably misinformation out there. And I, I wondered if you could sort of go over just like what are the biggest security vulnerabilities like for example we talked about you know how a lot of phones in the interest of size don't have expandable um storage anymore but what about the people still using the old ones that have it you know is that is that less secure um or just old devices in general i, I don't know i wondered if you could just kind of touch on what the, the major security vulnerabilities on people's phones are yeah i would say the first thing is that and this is more a more applies to Android because um, with iPhones, there's been more of an attempt to support older devices. Mm -hmm. But with Android devices, because the market has been so fragmented for so long, 
um, it's been really difficult to get vendors because what vendors end up doing is they take the base Android, they fork it. And anyone who's forked the code base knows that the further you deviate, the harder it is to bring it back in line. So what ends up happening is they fork a code base, they do a lot of custom changes. And then when Android upstream announces a big update, they have to relation, is it, is it worth incorporating these, backporting these changes into our fork or not? Um, and so you, what you end up having now, because at, at one point they just decided, no, it's not really worth it. And they wouldn't really, in some cases, you couldn't even count on the, the next version of Android when it comes out working on a phone that you bought from a lot of vendors. Um, eventually, there was enough outcry about this that you started seeing people offering updates for a certain amount of time. You know, they would say, you, you'll get software updates for the next two years or something, maybe three years, because they, they want you on a, two or, a one to two year cycle anyway. Um, to give you a software updates for a small amount of time. But yeah, so to me, the biggest security issue is that if you aren't willing to pay for a new phone every couple of, every two years, um, which, then you're faced with a, potentially with an Android OS that doesn't get updates anymore after a certain amount of time. I mean, even I, I have like the, one. I currently have a Google Nexus device, which was one, which was Google's attempt to solve this problem by saying, we will just ship a bare bones Android um, with our apps on it. And we promise, you know, a certain number of years of updates from the moment that it ships, which was great. But those of us who are past that point, I'm past that point on this phone and I don't, I can't get OS updates anymore um, because they don't, they don't support it anymore. So then at that point, even though the phone works perfectly fine, I, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's no, it's not like it's too slow to do run the app that's already running or anything like that. Uh, but now if I want, if I care about security, I have to now get rid of it and get a new device or optionally root it, which Google would say is even less secure, and then run a third-party OS from one of these community, um, one of the community Android alternatives uh, that does get newer updates, as long as my device is supported. <laughs> and that's the other right, thing is there's, right. there's so many Android devices out there mm -hmm. that it's a, always a moving target to because, you know, communities can only support so much hardware. They only have so much hardware on hand. I mean, we've seen this on the Linux desktop. Um, you're, there are, it, when someone would ask me, um, you know, five, six, seven years ago before I worked at Purism, so now I'm biased. But if someone were to ask me, what laptop should I get? You know, now I'm biased, so I would just tell them to buy a Purism laptop, I guess. That's the, um, but before that, I would say, well, um, if you want to know how, I would pick a laptop that you see a lot of Linux developers around you using because it's mm -hmm. more likely that things work, especially if, you, if there's a laptop that a lot of kernel developers are using, then you know that the kernel support's probably pretty decent on it, you know, because yeah. uh, if there's a problem, they, they will work to fix it. Uh, and the same thing kind of goes for phones because there's, there's not an unlimited size of the community that can solve every, that can port to every piece of hardware. So there's limits. And so you end up with hardware compatibility lists and you, you know, you're, if you get, especially if you get a flagship phone from a vendor, there's a decent chance that after a couple of years, you know, after it's a couple of years old, it might finally start getting support. Just like, you know, 20 years ago, if you bought a brand new Linux computer or a brand new desktop computer, um, you usually had to wait a couple, a year or two before Linux ran well on it because people hadn't ported hadn't written drivers for everything. And the phone landscape is pretty similar. Um, so in practical terms, what, what, what does that mean? What can, like, okay, I have a two, three-year-old Android phone. What can somebody do to me? <laughs> a malicious actor. 
well, you know, you're not getting OS. Yeah, so your so your apps in theory should still get updated. So if you're worried about you know there's there's two big vectors. There's the there's a fundamental OS issue. Um, there's that hasn't been patched. That if someone takes advantage of it now, um, they could have malware that persists on your phone always, and you you're not aware of it anymore because they mm -hmm. essentially kind of root your phone. Right. Um, so there's that threat um, for the on the app side. Generally speaking, you should be able to continue to get apps for a good long time. Um, apps generally, uh, you know, they'll support a range of of uh, Android OS versions. So you should be able to keep getting updates along those lines for that part. So that part, as long as you're good about always keeping things up to date, I mean, it's really just a, a game of mm -hmm. always updating your Android device. Sure. And if you have the latest but, version, then you're probably okay. But I mean, can people, can people read my files? Can they, can they, I don't know. Um, there's my banking info compromise. Like what exactly is compromised? Just well, to in, put it in like in complete layman's terms. Well, sure. So in complete layman's terms, in theory, if you have a three-year-old device that had an unpatched major vulnerability in it that you couldn't get patched necessarily, then someone who could convince you to install an application, like a modified a malware version of an application, um, could then have remote access to everything on there. Yeah, anything. So your device is their device, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah. If you put a file, your pictures, all that stuff. I mean, we've seen that, right? People get remote control of someone's mm -hmm, phone. Yeah. And famous people. All the, <laughs> the famous yep. people and the, all their nudes are now on the internet, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's the thing that really happens. And usually it's a case of, of convincing them to install some application that looks legit. But there's also cases that, you know, there's been many cases in the past of, of exploits that work remotely. You can send someone an SMS, a certain type of SMS, Right. and get remote control now those things get patched but again if you're running an old device sure then you may not be able to get that patch and that's the problem mm -hmm. um there's just so many of these old and so what's the you know so for those people the alternative is you basically just if you want to stick with android you have to be budget for getting a new android device um however often your vendor provides updates essentially right. um, i'm wondering great. yeah i'm wondering about the larger ecosystem are trying to influence that and the, the one I'm thinking of right now is in cars so as it happens um, where I am here in California um, our car died last year and we didn't get another one we're uh, we just rent cars and so I rent a lot of cars and most of them not all of them have what's called um, Apple's CarPlay and Android something i forget what the android one is called they usually maybe just called android play or something like that um but what it means is that if you plug your phone into the usb jack of the car or if you associate it with you know you connect it through bluetooth all of a sudden your navigation app shows up on on the display in the car and the display in the car basically turns into a big replica or something like a replica they're all clunky um but something like one of your phone. And these are, I hate to say it, are really handy, especially for navigation. It's a lot easier to look at the, the built-in display on your dashboard than it is to like look at the phone laying on the seat next to you or some other thing like that. And, and I'm wondering, I mean, all of these car places are, all the car makers are, oh, they're moving in such a, they've always been kind of proprietary. They're making it worse on the whole. But I'm wondering if there's some, if there's some ways to put, holes in the bowling ball that is the car makers and 
and twist them in the direction of opening things up to um, to something like, you know, like this phone or, you know, open and free phones. Do you see any hope in that direction? I, I mean, in some, in some cases, uh, I mean, what you're seeing, the reason that they have the, the, like the Android auto and the iPhone, you know, sync up with those phones is because they were trying to, at, at one point they, they decided, you know, they were trying to have an in-house OS that did all of that. And they were always running behind whatever the latest state of the yeah, phone is. And yeah. people would say, you know, I just want, I just want what, what, what's on my phone to be on that screen. And so, you know, you would get a brand new car and um, it's the same problem with, with the phone. You get a phone and your average Android phone starts showing it its age after getting updates for a while. And a car is even worse because it's not really going to be getting over the up, updates a lot. And so, you know, 10 years on that interface is going to look pretty clunky. And so, yeah, their approach, their solution to that is, well, we will just support. Also, the other problem is people, you know, iPhone people would want it to be like an iPhone and Android people would want it to be like Android and have that compatibility. So the solution was to have their in-car system support both of those protocols so they didn't have to worry about it. You know, they just yeah. had basic support and you just plug in your phone and get, get anything else. There has been, you know, they're, they're in the embedded space, you know, there's a lot of Linux and the car embedded space there is too. And I've heard from time to time, there's been different projects to do that. And it's possible that some of those in-car infotainment systems you see are Linux-based. I would assume so. That's, that's one reason yeah. I thought it might make some kind of sense. But they certainly don't open that up, right? I mean, yeah, no. famous, yeah, famously, you know, the, big, the Tesla systems are Linux under the hood. They're running a custom Linux OS for sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, they're gonna. They all will, will have an interest in making it proprietary, you know, or, or making it. You know, they're not going to necessarily publish the source code for all of their changes. Yeah, boy, I should love to change that, but it, that, that may be just the wrong, the wrong one to push. You know, there's. Well, there's some, the, go ahead. You sorry. You could hear the argument. I was going to say you could hear the argument of well, but it's your car. Imagine if you were to change it from our lockdown protected thing and it gets hacked and then someone somehow remotely controls your car. Of course, you could argue, well, people, <laughs> if you go to DEF CON any year since, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. in and the last couple of years, yeah. yeah, someone's doing that already, right? And so is it really any different? Um, but yeah, the, the argument would be, no, we have to close this. We have to close all of this up because otherwise someone could hack your car. Uh, well, that would at least be the, what they would say. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure. The car is, even, is an even tougher problem than the phone because you're talking about hardware that truly doesn't change. And the existing phone OSs really aren't necessarily made for longevity because they want you to, because there's a built-in sort of feedback loop between the, the phone vendors and the cellular providers to keep everyone on a tight one to two year upgrade loop. Um, and it benefits both parties. And so they both kind of, you know, un even, whether it's intentional or not, you know, there's these design decisions and other decisions that, that are all based on that idea that you're going to upgrade your phone every two years or so. It's pretty it's bad. I mean, I, I, there's, I mean, if you, you take a car from 1995 and it's not, in, 19, in 1995, a 1985 car wasn't that old. Um, right. Right now, a, 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 you know, a 2016 car feels a bit old. You know, that's... <laughs> well, well, you know, and the funny thing when it comes to computers and phones, and, and this is something I ended up writing this really long-winded blog post about the League One Five um, a couple of weeks ago 
about obsolescence and how we're trying to fight that with the biggest part of the design, because this is a problem, especially in the phone space, that upgrade cycle of every two years. But it's weird because the hardware, generally speaking, is still fine. It's just the yeah. OS doesn't get updates for the most part, or because the apps are accustomed to getting new hardware every two years, you know, they're not trying to improve or optimize the applications. Generally, they know they're going to get more CPU. Uh, but, you know, it reminded me of, again, the Linux desktop space where you would get this computer. I remember forever we would, our Linux users group would get these computers that were deemed too old to use to run Windows on. They're so slow. And then you would put Linux on it and it was like a brand new computer. You know, you know it was just way right. faster. And even though the hardware was old. And, you know, if you, if you go to a Linux conference nowadays, you will see people with, you know, 10, 15, sometimes year old computers that are still running fine for the most part. Now, sometimes web, you know, websites in particular are getting pretty crazy as far as resources, but yeah, you know, a 10 year old laptop isn't like, a, you'll see a lot of people with 10 year old ThinkPads running fine. I, like right now, um, my personal Libram laptop is, is six years old, just about. And before that I had my previous ThinkPad for six years. And I only upgraded really because I thought the Leighton 13 was really cool. <laughs> and, it was, and my ThinkPad was starting to get a little slower with websites. Um, and to me, like the phone could be the same way. There's no, in our case, because we haven't even really gotten started on the optimization side too. I mean, we're optimizing to a point, but a lot of it's still working on getting, you know, hardware drivers um, working well and things like that. That it's, it's one of these cases where, you know, the phone today has a certain speed and then it runs it runs fine, but um, in a year from now, it'll be actually a lot faster <laughs> because you know the yeah. people haven't focused on optimization. In the year after that, it'll probably be faster than that, um, and, an and it should improve over time. And because we have no interest in shutting down updates, like we said, we're going to provide updates for the life of the device. Um, then it should get better because, and again, this this goes to the fact that we're a hardware company that you know, we have this one hardware platform we're supporting with the OS. And so we can make sure that the software that we're writing works well with the hardware we're providing. And that's something that, that's, that's why I think some of the other attempts have failed to a point is that because they didn't have a background in hardware, it was difficult to, um, you're, you're either faced with trying to source a device and maybe support it, and then you don't have all of the supply chain um, uh, uh, requirements nailed down to get get the phones that you need or you're trying to support a ton of phones and you just you're always chasing the next one um, but in our case you know like I said we can standardize on one platform and just make sure it works and, and optimize for it so in my case I'm expecting to have this phone for I don't even I don't know how many years but quite like substantially longer than I would a regular Android phone just because I know it will continue to get updates I do like that approach. I was looking at your website earlier and I, I noted the approach of getting better with age, which is something that I think um, is missing. <laughs> well, cell and at the, well, and at the very least, it shouldn't get, there's no reason for it to get slower. I mean, right. if anything, sometimes you, you might have a, someone wrote a web application that's really, you know, a hog or something. But other than that, there's not really any reason it should get worse with age, um, other than someone who's, who's being kind of sloppy about how they write an application. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, and also because things are replaceable. The other thing that that usually causes people to throw away their phone is the batteries, right? So the battery mm -hmm. dies. You either can go to a shop and, and have them try to replace it for you, or you're out of luck, or you get a new phone. 
Um, and batteries just don't last forever. They can't, you know, they charge, you can recharge them a certain number of times and they die. Um, and because of the drive for thinness, a lot of manufacturers made it really hard to change the batteries. Um, but that's, the, that's one of the other things. Like we made a point, one of the reasons our phone is significantly thicker um, than some of the brand new super thin phones is because we had to allow space for you to remove the battery, remove the modem and remove the Wi-Fi card with actual like slots like you would see in a laptop you know but, so, but is it a significant difference really i mean you you're you're carrying it around at this and i realize that your perspective is biased but seriously like how much how much are we talking about in terms of thickness i mean when you look at it it what it looks like um is it well it's thinner than the n900 that you have well around, yeah which yes. um, but but so it's thinner than that. But no, if you compare it to a regular phone, what it looks like is it looks like a phone where you've got one of those those um, OtterBox type cases, like the oh, really uh -huh. rugged ones. Yeah. yeah. It, it's about that form factor. So to me, the way that the the back edges are kind of angled in, um, mm -hmm. it doesn't it doesn't feel it, in the hand. It feels like pretty solid, you know, because you mm -hmm. have it actually feels substantial. Um, it's not a problem. The only problem I've had, it's not really a problem. It's just because right now I'm also carrying my old phone too. So I'm carrying two phones. If you have them both in the same pocket, <laughs> it starts to be a lot. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, just because like I said, we're still, you know, we're still in the early phases of a lot of the software. So I, I went ahead and switched my SIM over, uh, my regular SIM over to it. So I'm, you know, receiving phone calls and SMSs on it instead of my regular phone or my, my, my old Android phone. But I'm still carrying around the other one um, and making a list of, you know, basically keeping track of all the little daily driver things that I would need on this phone before I switch over to it 100%. And interesting. Yeah, what's crazy is I've had it for a week now, and there's already been all of these dramatic, like the team, I tell you, the team is just incredible. But every couple of days, there seems like there's this new update um, that shows up, and then you apply it, and then things get dramatically better. <laughs> there's some there's some huge bug that was bothering me or something, and then it goes away every couple of days. So that's encouraging. So yeah. you know, so our last podcast, uh, we talked to Don Norman. We talked about you know usability and design and, and whatnot, and, and and we talked about features that that nobody asked for. You know, that a lot of the a lot of the problems. For example, we talked about the Ring doorbell, which you know we love to talk about here. Um, and, but we, but he pointed out, and he said, but but these features that you complain about, did, I mean, they're, it's probably because you don't need them and you don't ask for them. So I'm just wondering, you know, how how many of these things? Like I, I've frankly never, as I've owned multiple cell phones over the years, I've never really cared about the thickness or maybe maybe the weight to an extent, but not really. I've cared maybe about I've gotten excited about screen size or speed or something like that, but I. It's just not something that I gave a lot of thought to. It's something that the companies imposed on me, assumed that I wanted. And and I think that's kind of an interesting conversation. It's, you know, maybe th these things don't matter that much. Uh, yeah, I would well, love to be able to replace my battery. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, I mean, that's so a lot. Of, I mean, a lot of the things on my own list of things that I need aren't that kind of features, just more pretty basic kinds of stuff that it what's what's funny is pretty much everything I, I wrote it all down because I kind of wanted to keep track of it. Mm -hmm. And I even published a ticket with it in there. And but I was essentially able to find for just about everything I mentioned, there's already tickets filed for mm -hmm. all the things that I was looking for and people working on them. So um 
Yeah, I mean, the, one of the, like, what you know, like, for example, right, because we're picking off-the-shelf hardware, in many cases, or not off the, we're not picking off-the-shelf hardware, we designed this from scratch. In many cases, we're the ones that need to develop kernel drivers for things. Mm. Um, so, in, you know, so if you get an off-the-shelf, if you're reporting Linux to one of these off-the-shelf devices, in many cases, someone's already written a driver for things. Um, but in our case, in many cases, it didn't exist. And so there's still a lot of work where we're just optimizing and getting certain drivers to work well. And one of those is power management. So uh, right now, uh, there's a lot, of, there's still a lot of cases where the machine is just running full bore. You know, it's not, there's, there, we haven't really optimized a lot of it yet. We're still working on that. So it's huge, huge room for improvement on that front, just because, like I said, there's, if you look at, if you look at the machine idle, it's, there's a lot of things where we're not even, like imagine taking your laptop and turning up the brightness 100% and compiling something. You know, it's, it's not going to last as long. And the phone's essentially kind of doing that to a degree um, just because we haven't gone through and, and enabled all of the power management features of all of the hardware yet. Okay. But. Well, cool. I think that sounds really promising. I think it's really exciting. You know, I'm glad somebody is out there <laughs> thinking well, of these I, things. Well, I'll tell you what psychological, it's kind of what I noticed. There's, a, there's been this psychological difference in the, this last week um, that I wasn't expecting. Where what I when I got the phone, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to start trying to move my workflows over to it and start using it for things because I'm testing it internally. Um, and what I realized was there was a lot of self censorship I was doing on my Android phone. There were a lot of things I wasn't willing to do on that phone or applications I wasn't willing to install because I knew of how much you know how much tracking was going on over there, mm -hmm. and I didn't want to feed more data into it, right? And so it was weird because I had to, when I was starting to use this phone, I noticed in my, I already had those habits so ingrained that I was starting to apply that censorship to this phone. Um, and then I realized, oh, wait, no, I can, I can just install a weather application. It's, it's not going to be tracking my location for the rest of my life and selling it to somebody. Or, you know, I can, I can install a podcast application and not know that it's going to try to, you know, slurp all of those feeds up and use it for some recommendation engine somewhere. Um, it, it, so it was weird. It, it's taken a couple of days of me using it to actually shift my thinking around it because, like I said, I was censoring so much of my behavior and I wasn't allowing myself to do a whole lot of things on my on my Android phone that it could do because I was concerned about that. That is interesting. It's like you've been let out of a cage. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It really is. I feel way freer um, than I did, you know, two weeks ago. Uh, because I'm, you know, there's a lot of things now, like I said, I'm willing to do with this phone that I wasn't willing to do before or only willing to do on my laptop. Let's say. Interesting. Yeah. Like, I mean, I can see that there's a, there's a lot that I won't, you know, add to my phone and I, and sometimes things that I will, but I feel like really uncomfortable about it. Sometimes I'll do it anyway, or then I'll delete it later. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's unpleasant to have to constantly have those thoughts, but so, I guess it's just, so I noticed uh, when I was looking at it on, online, and I may miss some more, uh, the base model comes with 32 gigabits in it um, of, uh, of storage. Does it come with larger amounts, or can you just stick, stick your own in there, which I guess would be more ideal? Yeah, yeah. so we have a micro SD slot. So there's just one base. Um, like yeah. we, just, we just have one storage size, and then we have a micro SD slot, which is weird because the, my last couple of phones didn't have one. I mean, you can still buy phones that have that, 
but it's it is more rare because it's better it's better for the vendor to encourage you to buy whatever the largest built-in storage that you can you know um but yeah so I, I i bought this on my current phone where i used to like to carry around all of my music i would listen, the main way i listened to my music was on my phone i would carry around i had a, a micro sd card that had all of my music on it and so i just had it with me whenever i did i don't really i wasn't really a big fan of streaming i like to buy albums and i had a big collection and like to rip them and then put them on my devices um but recently i wasn't able to do that because i didn't have the space um because even even with all the space those took up if you start taking pictures and taking videos and things on your phone that can fill up really fast but yeah so this one has a micro sd card and i was shocked at how cheap the storage is nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I, I just looked at like, well, let's, what can I get for about 25 bucks? You know, just, and it's like, a, there's, you get a, a fast 128 gig micro SD card these days for 25 bucks. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is crazy. And I mean, you know, they go up to one terabyte or something now, I think. But uh, yeah, so I just bought one of those and slotted it and mounted it and then threw all my music on it, <laughs> you know, which is weird. It's nice <laughs> to have it all with me again. I feel like, Micro Center has them. I think you could probably get a lot more than that, even for twenty five bucks. It's well, crazy how cheap well, it gets. Every time I look, I'm like, I can't believe I can have this. I'm living in the future. <laughs> well, and there's so and there's so much potential with that. So, for instance, something I've been wanting to do, and that we're, we're going to be working on with this phone, is because we have certain all of the aspects of the phone that make up your identity are potentially removable. And oh. so, what I mean by that is. You know, the things that uniquely identify you on the phone, one, any of your personal data. So with a micro SD card, you could in theory have that be stored on the micro SD card or backed up there. Mm -hmm. um, the, the SIM card, which has like your phone number assigned to it and everything, the modem, which has a unique identifier. And then optionally in our case, we have a removable open PGP smart card. So that would have like personal secrets, you know, like your GPG secrets on it. Mm -hmm. um, but all those are removable. So you could concede. So one, something I want to build is the idea of having personas because I, like I've had a, I've written guides for Linux journal in the past about how to travel with your hardware mm -hmm. and discuss the concept of having, you know, burner devices that you bring because there's a risk of, of theft, but also because when you cross borders, people want to, because there's so much good information on your phone and <laughs> you can be coerced to turn it over. Right. Yeah. Um, so what I like my advice, there's a lot of, if you ask a lot of people how to solve that, they will come up with all these crazy, you know, like secret pins that when you type it in, your, you know, your phone transforms into a rocket and flies into space, or more importantly, like, or it self-destructs, or it, it lights some thermite, or, you know, there's all these crazy ideas that geeks like to, like to dream about, because they like to think, it's fun to think like you're a spy crossing a border. Um, <laughs> but the reality is, like, Customs and Border Patrol see, um, liars every day people trying to smuggle drugs across the border and, and your average person is a terrible liar um, compared to a professional lie detector mm -hmm. um so even if you had some sort of coer some sort of secret pin that you entered that did all this stuff they would see that you look suspicious when you're hand telling it to them um so to me the best way to cross the border is to not hide anything um, is to be able to completely comply with requests and not lose any secret data that you don't want to lose. Yeah. And one way to do that is to have these identities all assigned to, um, like you could call it a persona. So you could say, I have my regular persona I use when I'm walking around, working and being in my house. And then I have a travel persona, which maybe it, it's a different um, 
cellular modem. Maybe it's a different micro SD card that it's, think of it like a different user on a Linux system right. that has its own applications, its own files. It has just the access and programs I need to travel. I don't necessarily need everything when I'm traveling. And so when I travel, I can switch to that persona, which would back up if it needs to back up all of my other personas data somewhere, restore this persona. And I go travel. If someone wants to scan my phone, I can hand it over knowing that they're not, they're only going to be getting like my travel itinerary um, mm -hmm. and whatever, uh, all my travel, like the eBooks I'm reading <laughs> while I'm traveling. <laughs> then when I go home, I can restore it. Or even, you know, once you cross a border in theory, depending on how you can get access to your backups and restore them, you could even restore it when you cross the border to some other persona, mm -hmm. if that's what you're concerned with. But um, yeah, I mean, it, there's all these, there's, that's something that I'm going to be actively working toward building out um, in the next, you know, six months to a year on this, because, you know, all of those things that would identify you individually are removable and, and you can swap in something else. So something that, that I immediately thought of as you're describing this is, is you know, you don't have to pretend to be a spy to need to need to protect yourself from crossing a border. I mean, how, how many articles have we read recently about journalists being harassed at the border and and yeah. their you know their their information compromised so it you know it seems to me that this is a pretty valuable feature for for a lot of different people with a lot of different you know threat models but i mean it, you know you as people who have worked for a magazine recently it, it seems pretty relevant to us right i mean well, yeah well, or just any average person working at a high enough level at a company where they may have company secrets mm -hmm and are crossing into a border that might be known for copying company secrets and replicating them, right? Yeah. Um, you know, anyone who's, who's done that, you, you have to have some solution in place. What a lot of companies do now is they will, they will give those, those corporate employees uh, burner laptops with a VPN, and those burner laptops have no files on them, and then when they come back, they, in some cases, shred them and give them to charity or something in case there's malware on them. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it's a threat, not just for the super paranoid person who thinks that they want to be a spy or whatever, but your average person that just has, you know, everyone has some data that they, that's private, you know, whether it's company secrets or, a, you know, journalist sources or just a new picture of yourself or something, you know, people have stuff that they don't want to get out. On that note. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I love the concept of personas, though, and being able to compartmentalize. I mean, compartmentalization is, I think, so, well, it's something that you talk about. You've talked about a lot with Linux Journal and, and elsewhere about that as a method to protect your, your yourself and your things. But on that note, I think we've <laughs> we've covered it. We've been talking for a while. I want to make sure we don't uh, we don't lose the audience and uh, and uh, take up too much of Kyle's time. Well, I think this is a good discussion. Well, thanks for having it's me on. It's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah. So any final so parting wisdom for everybody? Like it? Uh, the, the mind is that it's really early. It's, always, it's still it's real early after all this time. And uh, we have a lot to work out. It's true. I mean, it, the phone as a personal device is such a, it's such a complicated topic, you know? I mean, it, there are just so many places to go with that. So many things. I don't know. So many bases to cover, I guess. So. It's, uh, we'll have to do this. We'll have to do a few of them before we even uh, make a dent in the conversation, probably. Yeah. But I'm excited that someone's working on it. <laughs> well, and I'm happy, I'm happy to be on um, however often you like to have me on, and we can talk about where things are progressing. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Let's talk about those personas next. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Sounds good. Sounds good. Cool. Okay, I'm going to.